We're at the end now of this series of sermons on the 107th Psalm called Let the Redeemed of the Lord Say So, where we've been talking about redemption and using those four metaphors of redemption to kind of explore our own stories of redemption. What does it mean to be freed from a kind of bondage and to be set free in the the broad and open place. The, the psalm looked at the metaphors of being ushered out of the wilderness and, and into a place of springs for going from thirst to having that thirst quenched. And also the metaphor of being in prison and being released from prison. Also the metaphor of being ill and being healed. And then finally last week we looked at the metaphor of being out on the sea and experiencing the power of God in the storm and being rescued from the storm and being saved from shipwreck. And all of these metaphors are framed by an invitation to praise God and to celebrate our redemption at the beginning. And then at the end here, which is what we're looking at today, which is the conclusion in verses 33 through 43, there is both a reminder of what was said at the beginning and then also a a piece of advice. The reminder is that, that God is God and we are not God. And therefore, the work that is ahead of us is to consider the love of God. That's the the piece of advice. The reminder, God is God and we are not God. And the piece of advice, consider the steadfast love of God, is the way that this section ends. And so let me read for us the introduction to this psalm in verses 1 through 3, as I have been in previous weeks, and then the conclusion in verses 33 through 43. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good. God's steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those whom God has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from east and from the west and from the north and from the south. God turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the wickedness of its inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry live and they establish a town to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By God's blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression and trouble and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of distress and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness stops in its mouth. Let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we want to receive this invitation today and take you up on that invitation to consider your steadfast love. Help us by the power of your spirit to do just that and to find ourselves transported by that reality into that broad and open space where we know that we have indeed been redeemed 
by that same love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was on my way home from my swimming workout last week. And at 9 o'clock on King FM, which is the classical music station that I listen to, that helps me to avoid the news uh, these days. At 9 a.m. every weekday morning, they play an entire symphony. And the symphony that they were playing that day that I was listening was Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. And the commentator said something that really just grabbed my attention and made me want to listen harder to this symphony. He said, you know, the amazing thing about the Eighth Symphony is that in, in 1811 and 12, Beethoven was not a happy man. He was experiencing all sorts of difficulties, family problems, recovering from his own kind of serious illness, at odds with one of his best friends, and also probably experiencing with greater and greater awareness the truth that he was going deaf. There was a lot going on in Beethoven's life when he wrote this symphony, and yet the commentator said, What's amazing about it is that it is one of the most joyous and playful and at times humorous symphonies that Beethoven has ever written. And I thought, well, I need to listen to this. As I listened, I said, I've heard this before. But I listened with a new ear and heard exactly what the commentator said. And that symphony just transported me into a place where I was smiling and I was laughing. And I stayed in the car a little bit longer once I got home, had one of those NPR driveway moments, you know, and uh, just kind of listening to it until it finished. And in typical Beethoven style, he had a hard time finishing it, and it just kind of kept going on and on and on and on. But I was smiling. It did exactly what the commentator told me it would do. It was playful. It was upbeat. At times, it was humorous. It is a collection of four movements that leave you feeling good. And what Beethoven did in this symphony was transport himself and his listeners hundreds of years later into that space that was broad and open and much bigger than any kind of darkness that we might be experiencing simultaneously. The darkness was set in the context of light and suddenly became smaller. That symphony showed Beethoven's ability to take himself to someplace bigger than the difficulties of his life and to set those difficulties in a bigger context, listening for something more enduring than the troubles. It was an invitation to me to do the same. And it brought to mind another thing. You can see the kind of crazy connections for preachers that go on here. I'm giving you a little backdoor view into that. I brought, brought to mind this book that I've been reading that my daughter-in-law gave me that I've been consuming in small bites since Christmas. It's called The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. It's by a Stanford psychology professor named Jamil Zaki. And in the fourth chapter, he talks about telling stories and he talks about the capability of our minds to unstick themselves from a difficult present in order to imagine some reality that makes that present 
more bearable or makes us more attentive to how we can address that present in light of a, of a bigger thing. But he talks about that as untethering from time and going either into the past or the future in our imaginations and our whole senses being involved in that task. Sometimes that happens involuntarily and it can make us mentally ill. PTSD is an example of that where a siren in the present can take us back to a trauma in the past and create anxiety and fear. But he also points to the truth that when we do this intentionally, when we bring ourselves to a memory or to some joyous anticipation of a future, we can untether ourselves from the present in a way that helps us to deal with the present in a significant way. And this plays a role in generally in building spiritual and, and mental health and allowing our imaginations to explore the bigger space in which our current difficulties are set. It doesn't erase the difficulties, but it makes them smaller and more addressable because we understand that they're not the only reality that we're living in but that we're also a part of something bigger. And allowing our imaginations to explore the bigger space in which our current difficulties are set. And I think Psalm 107, ah, finally the text, Psalm 107 is exactly the same thing. It's an invitation to set our current difficulties in the context of the memories of a past redemption or the expectation of a fulfillment in the future to, as Eugene Peterson says, that hope is the imagination tethered by faith, to kind of put ourselves in that bigger context. It's an invitation to enlarge our stunted imaginations and to take in a broad view of that open space into which God has invited us and which God has delivered us in the past and will continue to deliver us in the future. And we've been looking at these past weeks at Psalm 107's call to remember and those four metaphors that I mentioned in my introduction, those four metaphors of redemption. The psalmist is calling us to think about, to ruminate on, and then to proclaim our stories of redemption. And the last section, this conclusion, is, as I said earlier, also an invitation to unstick ourselves, if you will, to untether ourselves from the smallness of the current moment and put that small current moment in that bigger context, to unstick ourselves and enlarge our imaginations. And it is in this section both a reminder of a truth that helps us to do that and a piece of advice about how we can go about doing that. The reminder of the truth is the truth that, as I said earlier, God is God and, and we are not. It's the truth that's easy to forget because in those moments of despair, we think we are the only way and key to any kind of solution and it creates a kind of deeper despair in us because we know in many ways we're not capable of doing anything about that. It's a truth that's easy to forget that God is God and we're not because it's so easy for us to think that we're the only ones in charge. 
and that our reality is the only reality that there is, that what's obvious to us is obvious to us, and it ought to be obvious to everybody else. But what the psalmist does in this final section is essentially make two points. God can make verdant places into deserts, and deserts into places of springs, and God can establish rulers and remove them from power. Those things don't have the last word, in other words. The oppressors will not have the last word. The desert will not always be our experience, nor will the verdant place always be our experience. And then he gives us a piece of advice. It's a word to the wise, really, and it's that last verse, verse 43. Let those who are wise give heed to these things and consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Take some time to consider the love of this God, the love this God has for you. Because this is a God who is, as we all say to ourselves in desperate moments, in control. As strangely yet, this God who is in control has strangely decided to not be in control of something as well. What he's chosen not to be in control of is his love. His love for us and his choice to let us have a choice about whether or not we will receive or reject that love. He has the power to make deserts and oases and the power to establish and dethrone princes, but also leaves us free in the matter of our own response to his love. The choice of this God to pursue us and to love us is something that ought to make us stand up and take notice. The choice of this God to love us in this way, so the psalmist says, consider this steadfast love. Consider this thing that has grabbed the heart of God in such a way to pursue you and yet to leave the choice to you as to whether or not you want to turn around. So listen for his voice, join in his song, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You belong to something and someone bigger than yourself and your particular circumstances. There's no place that is more expansive. There is no place that is so wide and high and broad and deep as this context of the steadfast love of God. And so says the psalmist, consider this. Imagine yourself there. So permit one more Beethoven illustration, if you will, because once that happens, it just keeps triggering other memories for me. I don't know why Beethoven is on my mind. Maybe it's because Ellie told a joke about Beethoven and during the prayer time a few weeks ago, you know, what was Beethoven's favorite fruit? Banana. Banana. 
you didn't hear that, I wanted to repeat it for her sake. Um, <laughs> but um, in my first church where I served in Ventura, California, there was a family named the Haar family, a German family. Magdalena and Helmut had made their way to immigrate to this country in the 50s. They were both teenagers during World War II living in Germany. He was a prisoner of war toward the end of the war, an underage soldier who had been captured. Uh, He was a physician that worked in Ventura. They had five children, and they were all incredible musicians. And it was like we had all of this phenomenal German instrumental music played on stringed instruments and recorders by the Haar children. It's like the Von Trapp family singers practically in this church. It was an amazing thing. But I was over at their house for dinner one night, and Magdalena told a story about the end of World War II. And I've never forgotten this story. I, I think they lived in Stuttgart. I wasn't sure. that I can't remember the city for sure. But uh, like most German cities, it had been bombed out and was compl- in complete devastation by the end of the war. And she talked about being in the city after the war was uh, declared over and one day hearing uh, this man who was on the street amidst all this devastation play a Beethoven sonata and just on his violin playing this sonata. And she said, the exhilaration that was there, the sense of freedom, the sense of being having been released from bondage from, and being taken into a, this broad and open space, even amidst all that, that devastation, was something that she still remembered. And I'm sure this sonata you know, registered with her and brought back that memory every single time she heard it. There was exhilaration, there was redemption, there was release, there was a sense of a bigger truth, and the the music unstuck her from that devastation. And suddenly she understood and was rerooted in that reality that was bigger than the absolute nightmare that the National Socialists had taken that country into. There's something bigger than the mess. But here's the thing I want to say and get it across strongly. This is not magical thinking. This is not just dreaming of something and thinking good thoughts. This is not Pollyanna's glad game that we're thinking about, but even that is okay in light of what I'm talking about. This isn't just magical thinking. It isn't running away to some hallucination. It isn't denial. It's letting our imagination explore what is actually true. It is that hope that is tethering our imaginations through faith, as Eugene Peterson says. It's the truth that there is something bigger than the devastation, the dryness, the oppression, and the loss that none of these things have the last word in God's scheme of things, that none of them can separate us from this steadfast love of God that the psalmist invites us to consider. And when we know ourselves to be occupying that broad and open space, even in light of uncomfortable current circumstances, What can happen for each and every one of us is that we begin to sow seeds of it at this time, in this world, right here, 
and right now. And we become instruments of God's peace. Let's pray. Help us to consider your steadfast love, O God. And take us into that awareness of how we belong to something bigger than ourselves. That we belong body and soul and life and in death, not to ourselves, but to you. And then help us live in the joy that comes in knowing that we can make a difference. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.